Welcome to NFP's Insights from the Experts podcast. Each episode showcases timely expertise and perspective from members of the NFP community, delivering information, analysis, and solutions that address our clients' most significant challenges. Hello, and welcome to the Benefits Compliance Podcast. I'm Chase Cannon. I'm here with my colleague, Suzanne Spradley. We're both attorneys with NFP's legal and compliance team. And we're on the podcast to try and break down interesting and developing issues that relate to benefits compliance and to employers and their group health plans that they're sponsoring for employees. And today, Suzanne, we are going to focus on the transparency in coverage rules. Some people refer to those as the TIC rules. Transparency in coverage is a new acronym. We always have to have acronyms. Um, this one has been a big challenge because and it illustrates a common problem that we see and have seen more recently, but it's where um, the requirement itself pulls in the employer, but the information needed to comply with the requirement resides somewhere else. And most often that is with the TPA or the carrier. Um, but because the employer remains responsible, they need to do something, and usually that's engage with the carrier and the or, or, or the TPA. Um, but the transparency and coverage rules have been delayed slightly. That's also caused some confusion. And so this is just a really fluid area, and I think it's really great that we're tackling it today. Um, so let's get started with why why was this law implemented? Well, we all know that healthcare costs and premiums continue to rise. I feel like that's kind of a broken record topic that we talk about each year. Um, but PwC's Health Research Institute found that the medical costs rose 7% in 2021 and are projected to increase 6.5% this year. Um, then if we look at premium costs, Kaiser Family Foundation found that family health care premiums have increased 22% in the last five years and 47% in the previous decade. So, so wow. clearly those are probably tied together in some ways, um, but we are continuing to see those uh, increase and we are always looking for ways to help employers with managing those costs. Uh, the result of having an increased cost in healthcare or premiums is that people end up not accessing healthcare like they should. Nearly half of U.S. adults did not get routine health care or dental care in 2021, according to a survey. Again, that could be in part due to the pandemic, but also health care cost was a factor. According to the survey, 40% of the insured individuals stated that they could not afford the out-of-pocket cost, and more than a quarter of them did not have money to pay for their deductibles. So wow. um, typically what we see when there is an increase in healthcare premiums, the traditional approach is for employers to increase uh, the employee contribution to help offset, at least in part, the plan's overall higher premiums. And this is not something new, but what we are starting to see transform is the technical acumen of the participants. So we're finding that employees who are technically adept and knowledgeable about the healthcare system are willing to shop for healthcare. And the transparency and coverage rule plays right to this audience. And, and it also has the underlying premise that the transparency will drive down cost. So there's a lot of anticipation around that, that the disclosure of the provider-specific reimbursement rates will spur competition and ultimately cost will drive down. So some of that cost reduction could be coming from consumers who are making more informed choices, but it could also help employers and plans when they're negotiating reimbursement rates with providers. They now have access to everybody else's reimbursement rates. 
of course, this goes both ways. And so providers are also going to be able to see that data and could seek increased reimbursement rates after learning, learning what their competition is getting paid. So what, what's likely to occur is that in some cases, we'll see negotiated prices go up. In other cases, it may come down, but it will create overall a compression of those healthcare rates so that there's less variability and we won't have those large outliers. And it's likely that the rates will become more normalized. Yeah. Nothing drives a discussion like the all-powerful dollar, right? And so <laughs> when people have more information, that changes behaviors, like you're saying. Um, so let's, let's uh, now that we understand a little bit more about the purpose of the, these transparency rules, let's focus in a little bit more on the actual requirement. What are, what are, what are employers supposed to be doing here? What is the requirement under the law? Well, okay. First of all, I want to mention this is a tri-agency rule. That's always fun when we have the Department of Treasury, mm -hmm. the Department of Labor, and the Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, overseeing an, an area. Um, but we'll start by saying, again, as you had mentioned in the beginning, that enforcement of the 22 plan years is delayed until July 1. And what that means is most group health plans and health insurance issuers must publish provider-specific reimbursement rates in machine-readable files on the internet. And so on July 1st, the plans that began from January 1 until that date will need to post the information. And thereafter, the tri-agencies expect the plans and the issuers to publicly post the machine-readable files in the month in which the plan year begins. And so if you have a August uh, plan year, then it will be posted um, beginning in August. So as I mentioned, it applies to most plans, which means group health plans and health insurance issuers in the individual and group markets. That includes both insured and self-funded group health plans, but it does not apply to grandfather plans, accepted benefits, healthcare sharing ministry, short-term limited duration insurance, and account-based plans like an HRA, which only reimburses claims. So Interestingly, the enforcement of this is largely going to be left to the states with some, hopefully the federal government is expected to provide some process for enforcement. Uh, Self-funded plans will still be subject to the DOL enforcement, of course. Yeah. Okay. So this is great info on the basics there. Um, two quick thoughts. When we say health insurance issuers, we're talking about carriers, right? That's, That's uh, correct. Term for that. Right. Yeah. And then we have seen, and I'm just mentioning this because it's come up in our interactions with our clients, we have seen some carriers sending communication directly to clients or directly to uh, brokers talking about how they're going to handle the, the posting of those machine readable files. Right. So listeners may be familiar with that and that process has kind of started. And thankfully, you know, at least some carriers are trying to do something there. Right. And we'll get, we'll get to more of that in a moment. Oh, great. We, uh, so thanks for the basics there. What information has to be made available and, and what is a machine readable file? That's a, another new term that's uh, being introduced here. Yes, and I think it's one of those terms like hanging chats that suddenly we'll all become <laughs> familiar with. Right. Um, but it's simply data, and I'm definitely not a technology um, expert, but it's it's data in a format that can be processed by a computer. So uh, for example, it has to be in a non-proprietary open standard format like I'm saying JSON, it could be pronounced J-S-O-N, I'm not sure, XML. And uh, um, they must be available via the HTTPS. And so that means really that it is um, available to the public without restriction, no password, no username. Um, it's, uh, for example, an Excel file does not meet that standard. 
Um, and it can't be placed on an internal website that's for your participants, like your HRIS system or your benefits website that requires, of course, a password and, and a username. It's truly available for the public. That means your competitors. Um, and at this time, there's two files that must be made available. We really haven't gone into all the areas of the transparency rule. Um, there's different aspects of it that we won't touch on today. Um, I'll mention I'll mention them, but we will really are just focusing on the ones that are going to be come up first. And those that is the the two files of the in network rate files and the allowed amount file related to out of network providers. Okay. Let's start with in-network rates. Explain to us what has to be included there. So for this file, that means rates for the items and the services of all the contracted providers um, that must be included. So again, these are covered items and services. You will hear us talk later about um, an online tool that's geared towards participants identifying what their expected out-of-pocket rate is. And you'll hear of at that time, it must apply initially to 500 items and services that have been selected. That applies again to that individualized tool. For this one, it has to be all covered items and services for all in-network providers. And again, if a plan uses like leased networks, the data must be blended with local network data so that there's one compliant machine readable file. Each listed rate will also be associated with the national provider identifier, the NPI, the tax identification number, TIN, and place of service code for each provider, and the last date of the contract term or the expiration date. And what gets complicated is, is really the many varied types of provider contracts. So if a if a plan uses a standard fee-for-service model or other reimbursement arrangement, like a bundled payment arrangement, the primary billing code and total cost for the bundle must be identified in the file as well as the list of services included. For example, there's other areas that it's not as clear in the regulation. So while, while capitation rates are typically tied to patient characteristics such as age, sex, area, and risk score, the rate required to be reported is the base negotiated rate, which doesn't reflect any of that patient-specific information. So without that additional detail, it's really going to be difficult to translate that into a meaningful payment rate that's comparable with other providers. And then also, if you look, for example, um, in cases where some portion of, of a provider's revenue is tied to performance under like a value-based contract based on quality outcomes or total cost of care, for example, the health plan only has to report the underlying negotiated fee schedule, so not the, not the adjusted fee schedule. Um, that would uh, actually apply. So the health plan does have the option to disclose that additional detail in the machine readable files, but we don't think that plans are likely to do that. And they'll just focus on what's actually required and not any of the optional elements. So it does leave a bit to, to be seen in terms of how useful this information is for some types of provider agreements. Yeah. Does sound complex, Suzanne, I've got to say. And we hear it all laid out like this, right? But again, think about the idea here. What, what are we trying to do? Create a little bit more transparency, a little bit more information so that people have a better idea ahead of time. And as you said, for uh, com competitors as well to drive the marketplace. But let's turn to the out-of-network file. Uh, yes, well, and before I do that, just a note on what you mentioned. Yes, you're right. The complexity of it, um, and if you look at the raw data files, you know they they don't look that helpful. I think it's really going to 
What's going to come into play are um, data analytics companies taking that information, aggregating it, and putting it in a format that's usable and um, for others to use. And so I think that's what, what we'll see next is really um, private companies taking that data and um, you know working with it and making it available and useful for the rest of us. So yeah. from an for the out of network file, it must include the historical out of network bill charges and the allowed amounts for the items and services that are rendered by a particular provider. Um, the time frame for this is they look at a 90 day period and that begins with 180 days prior to the publication date of the file. So you go back 180 days, then you use 90 days worth of that data um, and that must be updated monthly. So. If we unpack that a little bit more when it talks about build charges, that's defined as the total charges for item or service billed to a group health plan or health insurance issue or by a provider. That's pretty self-explanatory. I think most people know what build charges is. Out of network allowed amounts is defined as the maximum amount a group health plan or issuer will pay for a covered item or service furnished by an out of network provider. So generally it will say uh, the, um, uh, the amount that is allowed and uh, typically this is where the bill charges come in the, the, and the surprise medical billing potentially comes in, mm -hmm. which we won't get into at this point, but this is where they will end up in a participant and let's assume it's not in a situation that the surprise medical billing rules apply. This is a situation where there's an allowed amount for an out of network service and the provider, the out of network provider will end up billing the participant for, for any amount over and above the allowed amount that's paid by the plan. For the out-of-network file, in order to address like patient privacy concerns, they allow only um, data to be reported that has at least 20 data points or patients, for example, or services. So if it's fewer than that, then you don't report it because, again, they don't want to identify an individual participant, especially when we're looking at self-insured plans data. So mm -hmm. we think that probably the out-of-network file is going to be sparsely populated and possibly not near as useful as we anticipate. Yeah, and that's, you know, competing interests and balancing acts there, right? We, are, we all agree it's good to not be able to identify people. We have laws in place that help protect sensitive information like that. And then balancing that with this idea of trying to get more information into people's hands to better understand coverages. Right. So that's a delicate balance. What does all of this mean for employers? Um, because very few employers have this information, right? And even fewer understand the information or have seen it or are even interested in it. Um, so right. what does this all mean for them? Right. And, and obviously for the fully insured um, plans, this really is an easier lift because, uh, for one, because the insurers themselves are directly governed by the rules. So the rule does apply to them. However, you must contract with the carrier to have so that they will have an obligation under contract as well to provide the requir required disclosures. Um, and what this means is that if a contract is entered into, the carrier will be held liable for any failure to provide disclosures and the employer will not be held liable under the law as long as there's a contract and an agreement in place. So as an employer, um, I wouldn't just sit back and say, oh, they've got they've got this handled. They're obligated to do this. You must review your carrier agreements, ensure that they include some kind of a provision that the carrier is responsible for providing the disclosures. And um, my recommendation would be to make the carrier liable for any failure to do so. That's part of your negotiation. They won't all agree to do so, but 
If you don't have a provision already in your agreement, you can request a separate written agreement from the carrier just on this aspect. You should be aware of the website where these public disclosure will be posted for the carrier starting in 2022. Um, another aspect of the transparent coverage rules is going to be that online service tool that I just briefly mentioned earlier, and that's coming up in 2023. And I mentioned that now because if you are reviewing your contracts, you want to make sure that that's included as well. Um, and just very briefly, um, again, that's another aspect of this transparent coverage rule that requires plans to provide an internet-based price comparison tool that will allow individuals to receive an estimate of their cost sharing. Um, and so that's based on an individual's um, plan, an individual's uh, service that they want to obtain. And it also includes some of their real-time out-of-pocket costs that have already, they've already incurred. Um, and that goes into effect the beginning of 2023 for the top 500 items and services that were identified. And then in the following year, 2024, for all items and services that are covered items and services under the plan. So we'll certainly cover that in more detail as we get closer to 2023. But I put that on your radar now for contracting purposes. Yeah. And thanks for mentioning it, too, because it does contribute to part of the confusion, right? Like you have transparency and coverage rules, and then there's all these different levels and, and provisions within that uh, larger bucket. And so a lot of confusion about when does it take place, who's responsible, what does it encompass? And so it's helpful to hear that. What about, um, you explained fully insured employers, what about self-insured employers? What, do, what should they be doing? Well, obviously self-insured and level-funded employers um, have a greater obligation. So again, they don't have access to this information. They will need to contract with their third-party administrator, their TPA to provide, or ASO, to provide the required disclosures. And it's important to note, though, that in this aspect, the employer, um, even if they enter into an agreement, they will still be held liable if, fail, if the TPA fails to comply and they, the employer, will be subject to the enforcement action under ERISA that's potentially $100 a day um, of an excise tax. So don't, again, don't just sit back and expect the TPA to handle, even though you don't have access to that data, you're under an obligation to contract with the TPA um, and ensure that the TPA is agreeing to provide that disclosure. And again, we recommend to indemnify the employer in the event that, that they fail to provide the disclosure as required. So for plan years beginning in 2022, again, the enforcement begins in July, employers must review their contracts, ensure the TPA is providing the disclosure with all of the information and formatting that's required under the machine readable files, that they are agreeing to update that information on a monthly basis, you know, determine where that information will be posted and, um, and, and informing the employees where that information is posted and determine, again, for, again from just a, a recommendation perspective, that you include indemnity provisions if they fail to do so. So you also want to check, again, as we just mentioned with fully insured carriers, with your TPA concerning whether they're um, getting ready for the 2023 obligation with the online self-service tool for, for participants. Right. Always, always good to look ahead. Um, so thank you, Suzanne. This is helpful and gives uh, employers a better roadmap, I believe, on what to be thinking about and, and what steps to be taken. What Do you have any last thoughts on transparency overall or this particular yeah. provision? 
Well, and before I get to that, one last thought, uh, as you mentioned a minute ago about the carriers beginning to send out their notices uh, and and talking about this, um, you know, posting of these different machine readable files, know that many of them are prepared to do so. They won't necessarily include information if you've unbundled your product. So you have a you, you have a separate um, plan for I can't even think of right now behavioral health, for example. Um, they, you may not have your medical plan willing to include that information. And so you may be ne needing to really house the information, you know, in one location. And so something to give consideration for, make sure you're, that you're including all the various, various aspects of your plan that are required to be uh, disclosed. Um, in terms of transparency, I think what's going to be interesting is to see if the contract negotiations with providers really do take on a new dimension because they're going to become they're coming to the table armed with health plan information of their own and looking at how competing providers are being paid. And, and for employers, they're able to use the data to evaluate health plans with this new level of scrutiny if they believe that their discounts are not as competitive as they want them to be. Um, but also armed with this information, employers may decide to do more direct-to-provider arrangements or accountable care organizations. So it's really going to be interesting to see if direct contracting becomes more significant. Of course, reimbursement is only one piece of that puzzle. We may see that employers choose instead to go with a narrow or tiered network, for example, um, to see if they can lower prices that way. So it, it will be interesting to see how this information really impacts negotiations and really direction of what employers decide to do. On the other side of the cost savings, when we think of costs now enabling employees to make um, more informed decisions, it will be that also benefits employers. And, and as employees and their covered dependents are increasingly able to shop for cost-effective care, and if they're willing to do so, obviously the employer will share in some of those savings and uh, either directly or through lower future premium trends. So we think overall, it's probably a win-win for all. I don't believe that this data is going to be readily usable at the start of its availability. It really is going to take these third-party data analytics companies coming in, get, um, gathering the data, aggregating it, and putting it in a usable format for others to use. So, um, and, and provider contracts are really quite complex. So, reporting on all these various arrangements and making and resolving it in a way that makes it it use, useful for comparing between the different providers is also going to be kind of a, uh, a bit of a challenge in this context, but all exciting to watch and see what happens. Yeah, we'll be excited to watch. And this is kind of how it goes when we have new rules, right? You have the rule roll out and you have everybody trying to understand the rule and then the actual requirement comes online and then you have kind of the reactions and what behaviors it, it draw, uh, drives. And so I love what you said about the analytic companies coming in and finding a place to make some money and, and provide a service that makes all this a little bit more digestible and manageable. Um, because I agree, some of this is going to come out. So be like, this means nothing to so many people. Um, but it will be interesting to watch. We will continue to monitor it. We do have an excellent white paper on this. It's a chart, actually, that outlines each of the transparency rules in chart format, kind of describing a basic level of what the requirements are, what their purpose is, who's responsible, the effective date, and kind of some employer takeaways. So if you're interested in that, ping your NFP advisor and um, your NFP account rep, and, and they can get you a copy of that. Anything else, Suzanne, before we wrap? 
No, I think your term digestible was really uh, the key. Uh, and so we'll see how digestible the information is when it's available. Right. Sounds good. Well, thanks again, Suzanne, for all the great information and laying it out for us. And as we like to say, that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. <laughs>